at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This journo bravely reported from the highlands of Papua New Guinea before women were given the proper credit they deserved for the stories they gathered. Maureen Mopio-Jane has covered some of that country's most difficult stories, from Bougainville to the horrendous levels of domestic violence that continue to haunt the nation's families. She tells me on this episode of Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project, how crucial radio was and continues to be in Papua New Guinea, and how from a very very young age, she wanted to be the voice coming out of that box. Today, Maureen continues to fight for a more inclusive and diverse range of stories in the international media, particularly from the Pacific region. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us on Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project podcast. I like the title. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So now, today we're going to go to Papua New Guinea with you. Can you tell us a bit about, you've got the most incredible a career Maureen how did it how did it start in Papua New Guinea it started when I was a little girl and um, my dad was a politician and he was interested in self-government in 1973 so he would sit us around this box which we call Leitio Australia or Leitio 9PA uh, which was the ABC at that time and uh, listen to talks of uh, self-government and uh, people like say Michael Somare uh, at that time trying to be uh, leaders and all that uh, plus the others as well but uh, he would sit us around the box of, and then I was thought I thought that the voices coming out from it was very magical and all that and I was thinking I'd, I'd really like to be the voice in that box. <laughs> <laughs> so even from a young age you can remember thinking that? Yes, I was very ambitious at that time, and I was, although I was second in line to my older brother, I'd, um, I was more hardworking, and I wanted to be the go-getter and all that. That so. determination uh, <laughs> came out very young. I think that's wonderful because it's a big part of being a journalist, isn't it? Being, yes, uh, determined. yeah, big de- being determined. <laughs> Ambitious, being interested and curious as well, so to say. Yes. Storytelling was that something that you storytelling? Were yeah, very well? much so. Because mm. when we were little, uh, we would uh, like apart from sitting around the box, Dad would tell us stories that he wanted to be a politician as well. So I was wondering why he become a politician when we should be looking out when he should be looking after the family first before going and looking after the whole world. I thought <laughs> so. Uh, that was interesting in itself and storytelling. I even hear her for my grandmother at the age of uh, 16 because we were brought up in the city area but uh, I had to go home to the rural setting in the village because I was uh, I couldn't speak my local uh, language Mekeo it was called so I went and she would sit us around and she'd teach me how to do string bags or go and cut sugar cane and talk and tell stories at the same time talk to the plants and and get medicinal uh, herbs and all that for healing sores or scabies or things like that and she would talk and let tell me what they, they were and she expected when I got a pen and paper she said no put it away just listen and if I did something wrong she 
should say, that's it, end of session, no more talking. And uh, sometimes we little ones would sit around, um, I mean, I'd go to my grandfather's place as well because they'd have a fireplace in the middle and sit around it and tell stories. So oral tradition was very, very strong at that time. It's a lesson for us still, though, that perhaps it's better to be listening rather than <laughs> taking notes or tweeting about it as much. That's very true. I can <laughs> adhere to that, yes. And uh, But now that I'm having uh, gone through the Western education in that sense, I always get a pen and paper and try to jot down things and being observant and, yes. You've got a bit of both. It's a good combination, <laughs> I think. So how did you go from, from that and how did you make that dream a reality when you were in Papua New Guinea? I mean, I imagine it wasn't a very common thing would would I be fair to say for a woman in Papua New Guinea to want to to, to be Yes, uh, education was uh, very important in my household. My mum and dad wanted us to be educated and that took me to NBC, the National Broadcasting Commission in Port Moresby. Started off there and when television was introduced, because I took communication arts, so I was able to do, it was a four year course. So I was able to do from not only just print media, but spoken media and go across the television media. So you've worked in quite a few different mediums by the time. Yes, yes, I have. I have. And uh, when I was with MTV, MTV at that time was owned by Channel 9, the parent company. So we'd have the 6 o'clock news bulletin to put out. But I hated being the uh, news reader when it was aired in Ley, that was one of the regional areas. Yes. That was not my forte and I couldn't read news properly, so I decided I couldn't do it. So I only just did news reporting. So the stories I covered were the riot in Ley, which were which shown on Channel 9 at that time, mm. and the uh, Bougainville stories and a lot of other stories, women's issues. Can we even talk a little bit about some of those stories? The riots in Ley, that must have been incredible for you to, to report. I mean, was your safety... Uh, an issue being a woman in that environment. That's very interesting. Um, there were two camera guys who were with me and uh, there was the looting of the Asian shops in Lay at that time and uh, I went to do a pistol camera but uh, my sister came in a police van and said to me, Micah, get out of there, meaning said uh, she was in the police escorting me out of there so I left and the cameraman took pictures and because there were guys as well so they were able to take very good pictures and then came back to the studio and uh, filed the story to lay and unfortunately I didn't get credit for it but I got a television set and a letter to say that congratulations <laughs> you covered a very important story so I would say the acknowledgement of journalists in Papua New Guinea or maybe Pacific region for that matter are not acknowledged mm. which is sad because editors sometimes get away with things. <laughs> mm, has that changed over time or is it still an issue? Uh, that's a good question. Mm. Uh, like some people I talk to the ordinary Papua New Guinean say, oh, it's not like before where we had a lot of investigative journalisms. Uh, okay, so like that local yeah. TV reporters. But I'm pretty sure there's it, it is twice as hard for female journalists for that matter to cover the story because I guess they have to be accompanied by a a male, for the, for instance, um, the safety issues. Yes, that's. I was accompanied by male uh, even at that stage back then, and it was an easy fit. But I was quite determined to die for a story. Put it that way. <laughs> and what was it that brought out that that fire in your belly? I, I suppose, Maureen. What is it about journalism that you think is so important, particularly in a place like Papua New Guinea? I guess imparting knowledge and raising awareness, and always creating public opinion, 
um, molding it and being a part of that responsibility uh, created a sense of uh, responsibility in me to do that. And uh, I can say that I was a victim of domestic violence in 1986 and I formed or I joined the Women and Law Committee and we produced a series of uh, productions, media media campaign. We went on a media campaign and when I say we, I'm referring to all the educated women who were journalists, editors, who were lawyers, who were secretaries of uh, departmental and statutory bodies and all that sort of stuff in Papua New Guinea. And we created, with the help of Frank Mills and Associates, uh, did a documentary called Stop EC. So it was looking at uh, the issues of domestic violence amongst working women and and uh, we produced leaflets, Pidgin, which is one of the official languages in Papua New Guinea, and Motu, uh, which is widely spoken in the southern side. And we distributed those especially to the police force and the legal fraternity to show that uh, domestic violence is not an issue to be, to be walked away from. Mm. It has to be addressed. And uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I was bashed up in mm. the market and I had to protect my face. That was my bread and butter that cost, mm. that brought me my money. So I had to protect my face to be able to read the news or present the news. So, so that's why I went and joined the Women and Law Committee. Mm. And that was quite ahead of its time too. When you think of the changes, even that I've noticed in the 20 years that I've been a journalist and reporting domestic violence, I think Australia's been a bit late to the party coming to that one, really. It was it was good you were able to raise awareness about that so early on. Has it improved, do you think? Uh, I guess it has. It's becoming worse, but my just judging, for, for example, from my sisters, they mm. tell their husbands, if you bash me up, I'll take you to court basically. So that's why it's working, which is good. And they have the support of their other relatives. Whereas I, in my case, I didn't really have support from anybody at all. But because of my knowledge as a journalist, I had to represent myself in court. I had to represent myself uh, to argue to get my daughter uh, custody of my child. And um, so the knowledge is very important. And I guess education is very important. I can't Mm. emphasize enough that one has to be educated to get more knowledge about a certain issue or things like that. So it's sad to say, but women have to be twice as much to be cautious at all times. Just the other day, the current Miss PNG South Pacific region was uh, talking about how one of the former Miss PNG had to be, she passed away, I think, from domestic violence or something like that. So it's a very uh, sad issue. There's a lot of stigmas even associated with that and a lot of misunderstanding associated with domestic violence as well. And I've seen this with a lot of, noticed this with a lot of your stories, Maureen, the social justice element uh, coming through. You think that's an important thing that journalists can actually raise awareness about issues that maybe people really aren't comfortable talking about? Yes, it's very important because it will bring out someone out there who's also very silent, who hasn't got a voice, and you represent their voice. And they'll say, oh, that person went through it, so maybe I should speak out and talk about it. So in a way, it's a healing process as well as it goes along. Yes. And uh, you mentioned Bougainville. Oh, gosh, I remember that from growing up. That was huge. And that must have been incredible to be reporting on that that issue. And it's still got ramifications today, really. Yeah. It has. The referendum yeah. is coming up and it'd be interesting to see um, whether Bougainville goes down the path of voting for referendum. Mm. 
and there's a lot of issues and complexities around it as well. But I can say that I did cover the story when Warren Clark at that time with Channel 9 was on the island and I was there with them. And uh, I filed stories from Bougainville, but I never got that my name mentioned or accredited or anything like that. And the relatives back at home were saying, you better get out of there because you're not getting credited for that. And, and for me, I said I wanted to die for a story, although I already had my girl then who has gone to be an Olympian, might I add. Oh, but fantastic. Uh, anyway, um, mm. so I did file stories from Bougainville and uh, it'd be interesting, a new chapter to see how the Bougainvilleans mm. vote. And uh, it would be sad to see them go if they vote for a referendum. A yes vote is what I'd say because some mm. of my relatives are married into Bougainville community. There's a lot of intermarriages as well, so I don't know how the complexity of it all will be addressed and all that. And actually, I was interested in applying for funding to go and cover the referendum issue, but my two daughters said, Mom, forget it, don't go. So pretty dangerous up there. I guess with the referendum, it should still be all right. It's not mm. so much mm. dangerous that. Uh, they were worried, they were more concerned about my health and safety, I guess. Yeah. And so what brought you to Australia, Maureen? <laughs> I came looking for koalas. <laughs> and I met my English ex-husband now, yeah. but he was a lecturer, physician, scientist lecturer at the University mm. of Technology. And that's how I met him and, and joined him. Uh, a year later, and I flew out on 14th of February thinking that, um, okay, according to the Western beliefs that 14 February is Valentine's Day so I said it must be my destiny so let me travel down under but then when people ask me why did you come to Australia and I said I come I came looking for koalas and he came to Daisy Hill to try and set up a home for me so that's how we all we came and then I've got a beautiful daughter from him and and um, she is also the medal that you're holding was has when she played in the under 14 Australian uh, National Club Champion Oh, in beautiful. Tasmania. So they two can. very accomplished sportswomen's <laughs> daughters. Yes, thank well you very much. Yeah. Yeah. At least I'm proud that they're good citizens of the society, put it that way. <laughs> and of course the stories that you're doing now, are particularly 4EB. Yeah, that's the main outlet. Uh, I volunteer at the Women's Profile Program, which I anchor most of the times. I'm a presenter there and I do production role as well. I'm really interested um, in the stories that, you, that you've got coming out of there and the way that you report them Maureen I think it's now that you've explained where you've come from I think it really shows why you report this way but you use a really interesting kind of technique of talking parties and talking circles really, don't you? <laughs> can you tell us a bit about that I guess it stems up traditionally to try and talk about uh, what you've done like oral tradition is important so I had mm. a listening party for my climate change project I did a 10-part series radio series on that and it was funded uh, supported by community broadcasting foundation and community radio network been putting it out uh, for other community radio stations to pick it up. I did interview um, especially Esla Rakova, who's the executive director of Tulele Pesa, which is uh, uh, from Cataract Island, which ha they saw the island split into two. Mm. So in 2009, they relocated due to climate change mm. issues. They had to abandon one side of the island, basically. Yeah, so wow. they've moved to the mainland uh, Tinputs area. So I interviewed her and the, mm. co and the complexities and the challenges and whatever she was facing with all these families moving across 
across and there it's a matrimonial society so they still own land mm -hmm. and blocks of land when they shifted they still the women had every right but she said working in the gardens is also very hard because it's different there's involves more manual labor whereas mm -hmm. back on the island there was less manual labor so and now they're faced with all sorts of socio-economic problems like marijuana and homebrew and all that so uh, the reason why I took it up is it's a personal journey as well from mm -hmm. my brother who, who went through flooding it came uh, last year so uh, on 26th of January like our family home was inundated with water and I thought oh I better do something so I called it no land no livelihood no home and uh, I had the listening party and I had the likes of Sean Dorney a retired journalist mm -hmm. uh, who was there with ABC from ABC and then Tess Newton Kane Dr. Tess Newton Kane was the facilitator of the discussion and then I had my old boss from uh, when I was a cadet journalist and he started with the Times of Papua New Guinea back in PNG. Oh that would have been amazing. Oh that really made my day oh. to be honest. <laughs> that gave me extra boost and obviously my yeah. two daughters were there and, mm. and my ex-husband was there too as well. Mm. My daughter was the MC and uh, for the occasion and there was another girl from the Papua New Guinea Federation, the PNG community who did a mumu, traditional mumu and Kathy mm. Curry who's with the Manus Cultural Dancing Group brought uh, Seiko cakes and also it was a fitting occasion to have Sean Donny's wife who was one of the mm. first broadcasters, women broadcasters in Papua New Guinea there and I had Pacifica Women's Alliance uh, president as well and, and Friends of the Earth and the young warriors from 350 Pacific Warriors, climate warriors from the Samoan community and so I had a variety of representation, put it that way. And, and does that way of bringing everyone together uh, and consulting them really do, do you think that that really improved the the quality of the story yes it has because i played mm. a the poem that i interviewed uh, one of the ladies from 350 pacific and her other counterparts didn't hear it but they did produce the poem so when they had the poem on humanizing climate change in the pacific region they were touched by it and uh, the, the young girl spoke up very eloquently and very confidently and she presented me with a lay of flower as well, mm. which is uh, very lovely and touching. And so that encompasses the importance of how the story is. And also uh, the fact that I was raising awareness here in the in the uh, community level in Australia, so to say, mm. about Pacific Islanders affected uh, from high sea rising and some islands, the sea is eroding the seashores. And obviously we have bushfires here in Australia and, uh, and some of the Queensland shorelines are eroding and all that, but because uh, it's such a complex science, I said in my speech, that it's a complex issue to tackle as well. So it's the one of, one of the most challenging stories that I've worked on as well. It sounds like you empowered people to speak, that that's part of, of what you do. And that way we get a better story because we're hearing more voices, like you say. That's very true, yeah. Not only just listening it, to it on radio but yes it does uh, give them a chance to talk and like my next door neighbors were saying they didn't know that people already relocated in 2009 mm -hmm. they didn't know that the islands like Tuvalu and Kiribati are sinking what is climate change in the Pacific people tend to ask and uh, we say if the 
people are having sea floods flooded around their houses and homes and gardens and affecting the water system and, and all that sort of stuff. So how can you explain that things are happening? So that's why I thought, oh, I need to tell the story so people know that there's something happening in the Pacific. Mm. How, wet, when, how to explain it is all in the name of science. But I did interview two scientists as well in episode 9 and 10. And it sounds like the radio is a good marriage in a way with the oral tradition it gets it on the record but it's a good um, meeting of the two yes uh, storytelling techniques is very uh, I guess it's traditionally told and passed on from my relatives and ancestors and down so that's why I was able to tell a story but then how do you tell a story um, using print word in a spoken media medium that's very different so I had to go and say okay just use simple words and <laughs> and then you'll get it all right <laughs> <laughs> I think I wonder if there's also a lesson too for the broader journalism community and in Australia particularly but about being culturally sensitive that if we aren't open to other ways of gathering a story we're not hearing all the stories we're not actually reporting all the stories properly. Yeah, I was on the island for a cultural experience at Stradbroke Island just to gauge engage uh, what the history of the island was, but to be honest, I said I was going to come back four or five or ten times just to uh, talk to the elders, indigenous elders, and find out what the, st- what the real story is, but they took us to show us what traditional plants were and their purpose, the medicinal purposes, and the history of the place on Stradbroke Island. And uh, I'm very thankful for having uh, done that experience I brought my sister and I said you won't experience Australia unless you experience the indigenous community as well and that's the important thing because another thing is always acknowledgement of country and uh, welcome to country and the significance of it all and that was her first visit ever to Australia so she was quite enriched with that and I was enriched myself too for having uh, accepted and, and welcomed into the community to witness that. What advice would you give I suppose for young journalists particularly who might be listening to this about how they can better uh, represent the broad spectrum of stories in Australia and not just get it from one or two little communities. I guess if there's, there's a story with all different angles so look at it from all different angles rather than one person doing a story do as much reading as possible I guess research is very important mm. that's a major component of it all it's a lot of reading materials and with this day and age it's uh, like for me I found it very hard trying to Google search a lot of information and there's so much information out there and <laughs> It's always hard to know where to stop now, really. Well, that's the thing, yeah. But there's certainly no excuse for going unprepared. That's right, yeah, be prepared. At least do your homework a bit and on the person and formulate your questions and ask. I guess it's the five principles of who, what, when, why, where, how, and uh, five W's and one H. That's what I was told. Always comes back to it, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how long we've been in the game. They're always in there. It's like the one recipe that we all... You can't miss one out. Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) I just wanted to speak about one other story that I noticed that you'd done at 4EB, that you don't shy away from the difficult issues, I noticed, Maureen. The last year's, I think, was on mental health. That must have been quite tricky for you to do within the community. 
as well. That was very hard. Um, I called it How Do I Cope? So mm. that stemmed up from a personal experience as well. I interviewed women from non-English speaking background people and psychologists from non-English speaking background people and uh, they talked about their work with the youth, with women especially, and the stigmas associated with mental health issues. Like the African president, the African women's president, Rose Carlos said, mental health is not a word in our language, in our vocabulary, so how do we try and portray and ask or talk to the person? So we have to say, are you feeling fine or how are you feeling and all that and does your mood change? Or you have to ask questions rather than just saying, are you suffering from mental health, basically? Mm-hmm. So um, I find a lot of women have talked about their openness on how the journey that took them to, to be where they are and everything. And I was able to, fortunate enough to share their stories and uh, I was, I'd like to be thankful to them for having mm-hmm. to invite me to into their homes, into their spaces, into their hearts. And it's a credit to you too, Maureen, to establish that you've established that trust with people. Yes. Is how, what um, techniques do you use? Is there any <laughs> advice? Is it just reassuring people that you're going to be honest and fair with with their information, or what do you put? Well, it down first to? of all, I'd say that I trusted you because you walked in with a billum. <laughs> <laughs> so that's already a cultural. I do love my villains. <laughs> yeah. But if you yeah. explain to them that this is a story you're doing for the sake of others to be aware of and to try and encourage others to come out and talk, especially I'm talking on stigmas mm-hmm. associated in non- amongst non-English speaking background women, mm-hmm. whether it's in mental health or other type of uh, disease or other type of issues, social issues as well. Did you offer anonymity or were people willing to identify themselves in that story? Oh, I found people mm-hmm. willing to talk openly. There's someone, she's quite willing to say because she openly talked about it that she's also an advocate of mental health issues amongst non-English speaking background. Is the independence a, a thing that you enjoy with journalism? <laughs> That's very much so yeah and I guess community radio can be very uh, independent in that regard mm. and and that yeah. Yeah well thank you so much for joining us on Streets of Your Town Maureen this has been wonderful is there anything that you'd like to uh, wrap up our conversation with I, I wonder if you get frustrated with the coverage of Papua New Guinea in some ways in Australia. Should we be hearing a bit more from Papua New Guinea? Well, Papua New Guinea is the biggest recipient of uh, the share of the money from the Australian aid. So it's like I'll take a leaf out of Sean Donnie's uh, book saying uh, Australia gave birth to this illegitimate child and he wants to forget that. Some Papua New Guineans who have children who are journalists as well and not only Papua New Guineans, there's some uh, Pacific Islander students who are journalists as well. I've mentored in my journey, I've mentored some of the ones from uh, Maori and Samoan and Papua New Guinean heritage in the process I was going through and I, I feel that if those children, they're mixed marriages now, but if those children are used and uh, even some of the others who want to cover Pacific Islanders, non-Pacific Islanders for that matter, can try and talk to, read books on Sean Donny that puts mm-hmm. out or put out by Jemima Gareth or mm-hmm. put out by Dr. Tess Newton-Kane and now we have SBS reporter uh, Stefan Ambrasto and yeah. and all that. So if they can look at all that and learn from their colleagues and I understand, I'm not in a position to talk but 
media freedom. That's. Uh, oh, well, I was um, going to ask you about that, really. <laughs> the media raids from the AFP, was that worrying for you to see? Very mm. worrying, because you think Australia has a free press to some extent. But I must say that that was worrying to see, and even... I was worried being a journalist, mm. put it that way, yeah. And that, that it could affect future stories. And That's suppose. right, yeah, mm. because uh, I'm pretty sure the media freedom organisations here are quite strong enough to advocate, to try and um, help. But with uh, modern technology, the use of podcasts and everything like that mm. too, people, the more they talk about it and all that sort of stuff, hopefully create a different public opinion to sort of try and argue for the freedom of press and freedom of speech and it's a human right and it's a, a right to have to speak freely and that so so that 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 editorial freedom is not something we should ever take for granted in australia no shouldn't really mm. editorial freedom is very important because you're telling your story because you're the first person on the scene you're the first person that talked to the uh, interviewee yeah so you're getting it wholeheartedly from them and they're pouring their heart and soul out so that has to be respected. Some of the editors I had were quite good, uh, like the likes of Rowan Kalik, who's now with the Australia Financial Review, yeah, I think it is, I know or that used name. to be. There you go. Used you to think be. he is? Yeah. Yeah, he was the editor for. He was mm. editor of uh, Times of Papua New Guinea at that time, and it was the man. Wow. It was the leaders thinking newspaper in Papua New Guinea at that mm. time, and then we had Russell Hunter, who was uh, thrown out of, from Fiji, managing director and editor of Fiji Times. He was thrown out of Fiji. Times. So he's the one, Russell Hunter, who came for my listening party. And um, so the editors, apart from correcting grammar, the context and the meaning of the sentence should still stay as is. The amount of things that we can achieve with a shorthand book and pen, Maureen. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is very important to tell a story because uh, you're imparting knowledge and you're creating awareness, creating a sense of identity as well for people so they can relate to it. I mean, I know that a lot of our Papua New Guineans are very negative because we have a lot of negative press mm -hmm. about us, so that's why a lot of us don't really have that sense of identity or a sense of belonging here in uh, Australian society, but there are some of us who are trying to do our best to portray that uh, uh, sense of belonging because I didn't mention but I also produce a PNG program but I do it in English because uh, PNG has 800 different languages and it's difficult mm -hmm. and I, I interview Papua New Guineans living here in Australia oh. so they're of uh, some of them are Australian citizens mm -hmm. and uh, some of them are Papua New Guinean of Papua New Guinea heritage yes mm. and it is important to have that pen and paper um, I guess we've come to a country, it's a free country, and we exercise the freedom of press and exercise the freedom of speech, as opposed to back in Pacific Islands, Pacific, there are little snippets of uh, freedom of press being threatened here and there. Mm -hmm. The politicians are saying they want a closed Facebook page, for instance, social yeah. media, and uh, politicians themselves at the same time have their own Facebook page because they realize the importance of public knowledge and public uh, domain.
we just don't have enough role models to also uh, portray a sense of uh, confidence amongst our young people as well, especially mm -hmm. the young. And the, the, those are the future of the country, really. And I can't emphasize enough, we should really have education in mm -hmm. all levels and mainly at the young level, and especially to empower young kids, for instance, not have traditional roles of uh, all your places in the kitchen, but get the boys as well to go and get uh, do scraping of the coconut or carrying water from the river and and uh, things like that, yeah. And journalism has a, an important part to play in that by showing that there's more to the world, I suppose. Yes, yeah, yeah. and journalism opens the world so you don't have to travel uh, overseas to hear a story. It's brought to your doorstep, it's brought to your earpiece, it's brought to your eyes. Mm. That's why I love working in audio too. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's wonderful to, to spend time with you today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Nance. <laughs>